live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back, and thanks for coming back to London just for the recording. You are between countries, I understand. Yes, came back from Barcelona at the end of last week and leaving to Prague early tomorrow morning. So, yes, just managed to squeeze this in. Well, thanks for that. This is a two-part series on the happenings of the 17th century. So you promised us last week that we're going to finally be getting the story of Shabtai Tzvi. Is that what you're going to be doing today? Today and next week, indeed. When it comes to Shabtai Tzvi, even as late as the 1970s, if you went to Izmir in Turkey, you could see the house where Shabtai Tzvi was born, and you'd find people praying there in Ladino, in Turkish, possibly even in Hebrew. His disastrous legacy as a false messiah endured for centuries, but often later in a more underground format as we shall see. Now, there have been many false messiahs over the ages. Rabbi Yomin Schlemmer Hamburger's book details a number of them. The Rambam had to deal with more than one, which we find in his correspondence. What made Shabtai Tzvi different as he's gone on down in history as the false messiah? So, in order to understand Shabtai Tzvi's quote-unquote success in the 1600s, we need to understand the nature of successful revolutions. Plenty of people try and create change in the secular world and the Jewish world, but most of them either fail or are at best very partially successful because revolutions need external factors and timing in place to work. And these are not in the hands of the revolutionaries. Unfortunately, for Shabtai Tzvi, there were a number of things that occurred or had been brewing over the last century that created the perfect conditions for him to manifest. So I'll share a few of them. Firstly, going back through the last centuries prior to the mid-1600s, Western European Jewry experienced tremendous dislocation and expulsion. They were kicked out of England in 1290, France in 1394, and then gradually removed from practically all of Western Europe into Central and Eastern Europe. And large-scale exile seems to indicate Ikvisa de Mashiach, you know, the, the birth pangs of Mashiach, potentially. And unusually, these moves were true for the first time for Svardim as well as Ashkenazim. Spain, 1492, Portugal, 1497... In addition, for the first time in many centuries, there now was a functioning community in Eretz Yisrael, small but there. And all of this change, all of this movement creates expectation. Secondly, the 1500s was the era of the spread of Kabbalah. Kabbalah has been around since time immemorial, but it's been taught from Rebbe to Talmud, People such as uh, the Ramban Nachmanides learns from two brothers in his hometown of Girona. It was individuals, and it was in no way something that occurred in public. The 1500s changes that. There's the Ari in Tzvas, there's the Shlo, there's the Maharal. And at this stage, there were already 
Bote Medrash that were learning and teaching Kabbalah. So it was more accessible. Now, it didn't mean that you could go onto the Oetzer HaChochmah program and print off whatever books of Kabbalah you wanted. But at least there was the ability somehow to study, which had never been the case until now. And Shabtai Tzvi was one of the beneficiaries. He was taught Kabbalah at a young age while he was still in his teens. What suddenly happened? So the Ari not only systemizes Kabbalah, but he stresses the practical need and outcome of Kabbalah study, similarly to what the Ramchal would do in the 1700s, in order to bring about real change in Jewish world history, possibly to preempt the arrival of Mashiach. And this type of language is used by Kabbalists, and it gives Shabtai Tzvi the ability to speak about the future in this way. That's the second factor. The third general factor was the Chmelnitsky massacres of 1648-49, Gezeris Tachvatat, which we've referred to in a number of previous podcasts and will now explain a little bit more about. So the Ukrainian territories went through economic expansion during the early 17th century, owned by Poland. But the expansion was only for the nobility. The peasants were heavily taxed, repressed, and in fact generally could not make enough money working the land to even pay their rent, which means that every year they went further and further into debt. In 1637, there is a large uprising of local peasants and Cossacks in the Ukraine, which by 1640 has been put down by the Polish landlords. But in 1648, the peasants found a capable leader who unleashed a revolution, Bogdan Khmelnytsky. He was also a strong follower of Russian orthodoxy in terms of Christianity, and therefore hated the Polish landlords both for their exploitation of the people and also for their Roman Catholicism. The problem was that the Jew was often the middleman between the peasants and the landlords because they're the ones who were the rent collectors. And in addition now to being the Christ killers, were also the people who took away your last animal from your small holdings. Chmelnitsky organized bands of outlaws into a large army. In April 1648, he proclaims an independent state and he captures a number of Polish castles, and more and more people are joining him. And in the autumn of uh, 1648, five months after the revolution began, he crosses into Poland and he captures the city of Lwów. And when that happens, the Polish nobility called the truce, which Chmelnitsky agreed to temporarily. In the five-month period that followed, there were thousands of peasants walking around armed. They had no discipline and they tasted blood. And instead of going back to farm their fields, they became a mob of raging killers. Was it only Jews that were the victims of that time? They were the target when 
this development took place. In other words, when the war with the Polish nobility wasn't taking place. And then subsequently, even when the war restarted, the Jews were always a convenient way in or a scapegoat because they were the soft target. And it is estimated that between 1648 and 1653, possibly 100,000 Jews were murdered. And it destroyed many of the Cahillus in Ukraine and in eastern Poland, bearing in mind that this is a time where mass murder was not industrialized. You know, everybody had to be killed by hand, so to speak. There are no machines of mass destruction. So, you know, however dedicated you are to murder, hand gets tired after a while. And therefore, in terms of percentage of decimation in the Jewish world and in terms of cruelty and ferocity, Tachvetat were akin to the carnage that took place in the Second World War during the Holocaust. Thousands killed, thousands fled, and thousands were captured and sold as slaves, mainly into the Ottoman Empire. But in the Ukraine to this day, Khmelnytsky is a hero with a town named after him and many statues all over the country. Wow. Okay, so you've said three major factors, the dislocation from Western Europe, the spread of Kabbalah, and the massacres of 1648. Right. And they all create an expectation of something better. They all prepared the ground in ways which Shabtai Tzvi himself could never have done for the imminent arrival of something world-shattering. But importantly, in addition to these international events, there was the profile of Shabtai Tzvi himself, very out of the ordinary, a very different type of individual. Firstly, he had a common wavelength with the average Jew. You know, back in those days, the role of the rabbi was non-pastoral. Nowadays, it's often referred to as hatch, match, and dispatch, hmm. right? That's what a community rabbi often does. Back then, the rabbi answered questions, he passed Shilas, anything that came to him because there are no telephones around. And he would also teach the few individuals who were privileged to be able to sit and learn. How many? Depended on how great the rabbi was and how big the town was. So, you know, he could have five students or 50. There's no formal curriculum. And he would teach to the best of his ability and to the best of his students' ability. When those two happily coincided, then it was great. And if not, then they would leave town and seek greener pastures elsewhere. And the rabbi would only speak twice a year in public. Shabbos before Pesach and Shabbos before Yom Kippur, Shabbos Agadol and Shabbos Shuvah. And that meant that the rabbi's interaction with the average community member was limited to people who sought him out for his Torah. But the average Joe would see the rabbi from a distance. He would respect him, but he wouldn't have any conversation with him. Shabtai Tzvi is very different. He speaks the language of the common person. He is also a Baal Menagain. He is a person who creates music, he sings, and all this is helped by a condition that he had, which wouldn't have been diagnosed in the 17th century, but in the 19th century would be labeled as manic depressive, which are at extreme opposites to each other. That means that he was able in his manic phase to hold court for 24 hours straight, talking 
speaking, singing, saying to heal him. And there are records of people who literally watched him through the night. Is this bipolar? Yes, also referred to as that in, in certain ways. And this is a person who had a magnetic personality, whose presence was inspiring. And people would take that in alone, even if they didn't learn anything from him, just being in his presence. And he would go for hours straight. And then he would fall into depression for a day, a week, a month. And it would be explained away that he was in his bodidus. He is now in a place where he is alone. He needs to reflect and, so to speak, talk to God. And these two extremes create very unusual behavior, although these mood swings would actually have a strenuous effect on him, as we will see. So basically, when you met him, it would leave an impression in some way or form. Of someone exceptional. In addition, he is a genius. By the age of 18, he is given, I guess, what we would call smicha, but it was much more than simply learning sort of part one of Yeridea as one might do today. He is a chacham, both in the revealed areas of Torah and nistar in the hidden areas. And living in Izmir, which is a trading port in Turkey, the port brought in goods from the Far East and shipped them into Western Europe. So Shabtai Tzvi's father became quite wealthy and was able to do something that most people were not able, and that was keep one of his three sons in learning beyond the age of bar mitzvah. Did he have his own rabbi? Was he taught by anyone that we know of? Initially, yes, but actually he then is self-taught at some stage in his teens. We don't know exactly when. And, you know, if you were to go back to the 1600s or even the, the 1700s or 1800s, the vast majority of Jews didn't have the opportunity to learn formally beyond the age of Bar Mitzvah. It was an economic impossibility. Most people had to work. And it was a few percent who were privileged to learn into the later teens or beyond that. Shabtai Tzvi was one of them because his father could afford it. And he took full advantage of it. Can we talk a bit about places, dates, times, a bit of context and history right. where this is taking place? Shabtai Tzvi was born in 1626. It is said that he is born on Tisha B'Av because that is the day that Moshiach is born. But who knows? This could have been added afterwards. He is very likely to have been born on Shabbos, though, hence his name. Now, Beyond his volatile and peculiar personality, there is the weird stuff that he did. But it was weird in a way that people could easily say it's holy. For instance, he was teaching a small circle of people. And one of the things he was doing was pronouncing the four-lettered name of God, Shem Havaya, Yudke Vovke, as it is written, which we do not do. So nowadays, if you wanted to know if it was right or wrong, you'd uh, phone or send an email to a rabbi and he would tell you. But in those days, most rabbonim were completely unacquainted with Kabbalah and they are not sure if this is something that's completely forbidden or if it's for the, those people of great heights, for those versed in Kabbalah. So he is unusual and you don't know whether this is truly great or, or actually quite bad. He also got married 
possibly twice within a very short space of time in his very late teens or early 20s, but never consummated physically either marriage. And at this stage, the rabbi said to him, either you go through with a proper marriage or you divorce. And he decided to divorce. And once again, this is seen in polarized ways. Some say this is very holy behavior, divorced from all physicality of this world. Even though that's completely against our Jewish beliefs. Yes, although maybe for those people who are into Kabbalah, maybe that's what you're supposed to be doing. We don't have hundreds of years of seeing groups of people and their behavior. And... He often learnt in secluded places and in seclusion. And as a result, he nearly drowned at the age of 20 in his own port town. He is rescued at the last minute, which is not only dramatic in itself, but it would be seen and translated later on as someone who has almost come back to life. Now, eventually, there were too many of these extreme behaviors, and he is expelled from town by the rabbis. And this starts his period of years of wandering in the region. As a result, he comes into contact with far more Jews than would be the case for a normal rabbi. The average rabbi could have been born, brought up, and die within 50 square miles, never leaving that district. Well, here you have Shabtai Tzvi. He's wandering through countries, through Turkey, through Greece. He ends up in Salonika, a city which had the largest Jewish population in all of Europe. And he makes a very powerful effect when he turns up. And once again, the rabbis in town don't know exactly what to do with him. And people are now getting to hear him and see him. You know, how many rabbis in, say, Poland would the Jews of Salonika even be aware of by name, let alone meet? So Shabtai Tzvi now has a following in certain ways, although eventually, the same as with Izmir, he will be expelled and eventually ends up in Jerusalem. This is now 1662. At that point, how do we, I'm assuming this might be impossible to answer, but how did he see himself at that time? He's already been kicked out of two places. He's wandered around for seven years. Did he really believe he was a messiah, great, or was he... Was he... So it's very difficult, if not actually impossible to know, because any writings we have definitely post the event are biased one way or the other. But we are talking about a very charismatic very knowledgeable, very unusual individual, versed in Kabbalah, who is a manic depressive with an interesting CV and known to quite a large public. This is not replicable. And it is, as we said, at a time where there is general dislocation in the Jewish world. So, you know, all of this creates circumstances and questions which are not easily answered. Right. So he arrives in Jerusalem in late summer of 1662. There are probably two to three hundred families living there. Just as an important aside, one of the most illustrious rabbinic scholars in Jerusalem was Rav Yaakov Chagiz, who had many disciples, including a young student of Ashkenazi origin, whose father had come to Jerusalem, and his name was Nathan Ashkenazi. 
and he was to become famous uh, or infamous as Nathan of Gaza. He was born in Jerusalem in 1643, and we will come back to him in a moment. Shabtai Tzvi in Jerusalem. He fasts from Sunday to Friday, and there are eyewitness accounts telling us of a visit that he made to Hebron, praying all night, tears, devotion, majestic appearance. And then, about a year after he had arrived, he leaves Eretz Israel because he is sent on a fundraising mission to Egypt. So, clearly, he must have made a positive impression on the Jerusalem community. Or they just figured they could use him. Well, they would have to trust him. It's more than simply to you make know, money. get him out of the way and to bring the money back and to help them because it was quite a poor community. And his mission proves very successful. And it also allows him to meet the president of the community there who will become one of his greatest supporters. He's in Cairo for more than a year. He marries a woman called Sarah, a woman of ill repute, in March 1664. And he will come back to Eretz Israel via Gaza in order to seek out Nathan of Gaza. Haven't we spoken about Nathan of Gaza? The name rings a bell. In the past, yes, when we spoke about Venice. Mm. Because... So who is he? Okay, we will have to also come back to Sorry him. Sorry for not true. being able to recall it instantly. Okay. So, firstly, he is an extremely gifted student. His talents are displayed in his writings, some of which we still have. Now, in 1663, he and Shabtai Tzvi had both been in Jerusalem but never met because Nathan was not yet a student of Kabbalah, which changes when he gets married and he moves to Gaza. He becomes very proficient in Kabbalah, including the learning of practical Kabbalah, to the extent that in March 1655, he describes undergoing a prolonged fast in the week before Purim. And he writes, and I quote, having locked myself in a separate room, in holiness and purity, and recited the penitential prayers of the morning service with many tears, the spirit came over me, and I beheld the Merkava. I had visions all day long and all night. A voice spoke to me, and with the utmost clarity, my heart perceived towards whom my prophecy was directed, which was Shabtai Tzvi, who he didn't yet know. So he's in this whole day of trance and he is getting messages from potentially Magidim about the end of time of Jewish history. And very soon after, in a place that is saturated with Kabbalah, Nathan of Gaza is visited by Jews who are seeking a rectification, a tikkun for their souls. And he imposes on them prolonged fasts and other such practices, which he himself carried out. And we know of at least three emissaries who came to Gaza in 1665. The first confirmed that Nathan is regarded by the whole congregation there as a man of God and that everybody obeys his instructions in trembling. And in fact, when Shabtai Tzvi comes to Gaza, it is to see 
Nathan of Gaza, because the effect of these extreme mood swings are so debilitating that he wants a cure. So he's well known. People are flocking to him from Wide yes. And Nathan of Gaza sees Shabtai Tzvi and bows down. And he says to him, you are chosen as Mashiach. Shabtai Tzvi pushes him off and says, I had that vocation, but I sent it away. And this is followed by weeks of conversation between the two. They travel to Hebron, to Yerushalayim, possibly to Tzvas. They are back in Gaza on Shvus. And Shabtai Tzvi experiences visions and Magidim, and he now becomes convinced. And that Nathan was the equivalent of Elio Anovi. In other words, the person who brings the message to the Redeemer. And Nathan of Gaza now embarks upon what you would call a PR campaign. Because if you want to be a successful Mashiach, you need a publicist. But it's important to note that both Shabtai Tzvi and Nathan of Gaza are learned in Kabbalah, which makes their partnership even more dangerous for the Jewish people, because they can justify, explain, even pretend to prophesize in ways that people can't ascertain the truth thereof. And it is at this point that Jewish history changes forever, not just for that generation, but even up until ours. Shabtai Tzvi declares himself Mashiach, and this proclamation sparks a chain reaction in, in quick succession. He himself enters a new phase of manic illumination, which is acute and frenzied. And Nathan of Gaza in 1665 will serve what the Christians would call both as John the Baptist, the prophet of redemption, and Paul, the PR agent. So Shabtai Tzvi is proclaimed as the anointed of God. Remember, we've defined Mashiach as being anointed, the meaning, the meaning of the word. On the 17th of Tammuz, which is a fast day, and that normally begins the three weeks of mourning over the destruction of the temple. But now the 17th of Tammuz is declared to be a day of feasting rather than fasting, which they carried out in Gaza, where they both were. Hallel is recited. And a letter is sent from Gaza to Aleppo in July 1665, reporting on these extraordinary events about the emergence of Mashiach. Did Nathan have a mental disease? Did he genuinely believe this? Well, also not something that we can know. It could be that he was so caught up in the potential of it that he carried it all the way without any checks and balances. In the desperation of it or the actual potential? the actual potential, or it could be that the power that comes with it just simply blew his circuits. Remember, he has come to Kabbalah very rapidly, and that means that there isn't the stability he's no longer learning under Rabbi Chagiz in Yerushalayim. So, you know, it is volatile. After the public proclamation that he was Mashiach, so many of the Jews in Gaza and Yerushalayim become his devoted followers because you, you can't imagine the frenzy that seizes the Jews, first locally and then internationally. Jews are quite a cynical people, I would say. So if this right. is such a frenzy internationally and then internationally, surely there must have been great rabbis that had come to check him out, quiz him. From all over. They came from Yemen and from North Africa and from Aleppo, and he was equal to the task. They both were. 
And on September 19th, 1665, Shabtai Tzvi begins a messianic procession from Yushalayim to Tzvas to Aleppo in Syria to Constantinople as the final destination. And what was his reception in all these places? Like the Messiah had arrived? I'll quote to you in a moment, but let me just set the timeline first. In September 1655, letters are sent out to places further afield, Germany, Poland, Prague, England, telling the Jewish communities that this individual is Mashiach, and Nathan of Gaza adds signatures of Rabbonim who attest to this, signatures which are either true or false, because there's no way to check that out in the 1600s. You can't send an email to verify this, which means it would take months to, you know, go backwards and forwards. And unlike us today, in those days, the masses really did want Mashiach to arrive because they were living in an exile which they wanted out from. They were living a very difficult existence. So they believed in Shabtai Tzvi. And in a very short space of time, there are thousands of Jews all over who are believing, they are maminim, that Shabtai Tzvi is Mashiach. And the important thing to realize is they are not becoming heretics, apikorosim. What they believe in is in the Siddur. And that's part of the problem. Right. They're not overturning Judaism. They're fulfilling it. Well, I think it's quite an important point you made because for any of us who find it hard to believe that there was a time where Jews around the world were believing in a false messiah, I think the point you raised that at the time there was this desperation felt and they were desperate for an exit, something that we can't fathom today. Right. What was it like when he arrived in places? The reactions. So you have got the shamus, shamosim of shuls in Europe recording the events in cities shuls in in Italy, in Holland, where Jews are fasting every Monday and Thursday, giving all of their money away to Tzedakah. I mean, why not? Mashiach is about to arrive. Don't you want to do those last few mitzvahs that will tip the ballot? We're not talking about a conceptual arrival of Mashiach, but an actual arrival. We just need to make it happen. People didn't bother going to work anymore. They were sitting and learning in the Beis HaMedrash. Once again, because this is going to make it all happen. But we now need to start thinking, what's going to happen when the bubble bursts? What will happen when they find out he's not Mashiach? What will happen to their faith and to their economic existence? You've got Sforim printed, and the inside cover is dedicated to Shabtai Tzvi with images of him, a picture of him ascending the royal throne. And across the world... Because this is the first time in history that a Jewish event is watched not only by thousands of Jews, but by thousands of non-Jews across an entire continent. And there are descriptions from everywhere. What was the Christian population saying to this? We'll get there. Let's deal with the Jewish reaction first. Ruviakov Sosportus wrote, Amsterdam is in a state of wild excitement. Crowds of people surging along the streets, dancing to the beat of drums. They took the Torah scrolls, carried them into the streets, and didn't pay the slightest attention to the disapproval and hostility of the Christian population. They are proclaiming at the top of their voices the news that was pouring in without being in the least discomforted by the mockery of the Christians. And Amsterdam had commercial relations with distant 
parts of the world. It was a center for news, especially in the exchange, where merchants would meet. And these merchants are beginning to get anxious. So they ask their representatives in the East for, you know, inside information. Is Shabtai Tzvi really Mashiach? And they get the reply, who v'loi acher? He and no other. And there is one merchant there, a man called uh, Natia, who tries to pour cold water on their excitement. And he says, you know, in the Talmud, there are prerequisites for the arrival of Mashiach that haven't been fulfilled. He goes home for lunch that day. He has a stroke. And that was, you know, more powerful than any verbal proof. And not many open opponents after that. Absolutely. Now, the news isn't always reliable. There's no real way of checking it. But feelings run so high that it made very little difference. There's a letter from Jerusalem which expresses the belief that the temple would soon be restored. And that's enough to convince people that it will be so. There are feast days that are held and they're non-Jews in the synagogues. In Hamburg, because there was a high percentage of Muranos who have far less of a tradition. They have returned to Judaism, but they haven't had those generations that have anchored them in the same way. So there's a similar response. Shabtai Tzvi followers, many of them were Svardim because they were Muranos, were in the majority. Although the memoirs of Gluckel of Hamelin gives a picture of the state affairs even for the Ashkenazim. And I'll, I'll quote from her book, it is impossible to describe the rejoicings that occurred when letters received from Turkey. This is in Hamburg. The Svardim received most of the correspondence and immediately rushed with it to the synagogue where the news was read aloud. Germans, both young and old, in other words Ashkenazim, also congregated there. And many of them then sold their homes and houses and all they possessed, all that they possessed, and were expecting salvation every day. My stepfather of blessed memory, who lived in Hamelin, left the place together with his house, his farm, and all his goods, even though he was a cautious man. And he sent to his children in Hamburg a number of boxes packed with linen and dried foodstuffs because he took it for granted that they would all travel directly to Palestine from there. And only many months afterwards, when it was all over, were the boxes at last unpacked to prevent their contents from rotting. And according to a guy called Lacroix, who was a non-Jewish Frenchman who wrote about Shabtai Tzvi, he says, quoting again, the believers in Aleppo added that since they had now accepted the prophecy of Nathan, they had decided to cease all business, to put on sackcloth and ashes, and to devote themselves to penitence, charity, and prayer, so as to be worthy to behold the fulfillment of the prophet. They established a fund for the poor to enable them to give all of their time to prayer. And they called on their friends in Istanbul to follow their example. I'm surprised the real Messiah didn't come after all this repentance. So we will yet deal with the outcome. But, you know, if you want to compare the feeling of what was going on, if you speak to anyone today who is, let's say, in their 70s, and ask them about the feeling experienced across the Jewish world during the Six-Day War. At the very beginning of it, 
the sense of despair when it started that Israel may not survive, especially, you know, with the news reports from the BBC and other Jew haters, haters of Israel anyway, saying that the Israeli Air Force was 95% wiped out, which is what the BBC said, accepting uncritically all reports from the Arabs. And this, you know, was the equivalent of the exile situation of despair which they found themselves in. And then the contrast is the absolute euphoria on the 10th of June, 1967, when Israel regains Yerushalayim, etc. And that feeling of ecstasy is what the Jews were feeling with Shabtai Tzvi. Wow. One last thing, which we touched upon, but to mention it again, to underline it. The important thing to understand in terms of Shabtai Tzvi is that normally in a revolution, you come to overturn that which exists. People have been going in one direction, and you tell them, no, 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 you're wrong. We need to turn in the opposite direction, whether it's political, spiritual. But what Shabtai Tzvi was teaching people is that what you currently believe in, I am part of. You believe in Mashiach. You believe he will come. I haven't come to change anyone's mind. I've come to fulfill the emunah that they had at least been thinking, if not actually verbalizing, almost on a daily basis. And now, once again, you can start thinking about how badly the Jewish people, how badly they must have been affected in the aftermath, because they believed in Shabtai Tzvi as a fulfillment of their Judaism. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they're bitterly disappointed. Where does that leave me? If I believe in what I'm supposed to believe in and can be led in the completely wrong direction, so how do I know that faith is true? How do I know who to turn to? This happened in the Holocaust too, for many who thought that Moshiach has to have arrived after this. But there's a very real difference. Here you have a person who is versed in Torah, who is a leader and says, follow me, and it makes sense within Torah law to do so, and they did, and were bitterly disappointed. You know, there's an individual, and that makes it very real. And therefore, you understand that there have got to be shockwaves that affect the Jewish people even after Shabtai Tzvi's death. And this is a phenomenon that affects Europe, the Jews of North Africa, a mass movement, not localized to one place, but we obviously leave this episode with three immediate obvious questions. What were the rabbis doing? Haven't really heard. What was their reaction? What was the non-Jewish world thinking? You asked me about that. We'll come to that. And the Sultan, who is the most powerful man in Europe and the owner of Palestine. Where is he in this? Part two next week. Always the cliffhanger. Looking forward. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Fascinating start. And yeah, as usual, any questions, feedback, reviews, please send to podcast at jd.org.uk. Do make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Every streaming platform that you can currently listen to this on has a follow option and it helps other people find it and it will definitely help yourself. Never miss another episode. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Mm-hmm.